to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be continuing with our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but before we get into that, let's just ask the Lord's blessing over this morning. Father, we thank you that we, we can come to you this morning and um, we're thankful hearts, hearts of, full of expectation, Lord, and just um, knowing, Lord, that you're good. And um, Lord, we, we're so thankful, Lord, that we get to, to be at church, get to serve you, um, get to open your word, and um, Lord, be, be ready to hear from you, Lord. Please prepare our hearts, please, please um, work in my heart even as I preach, Lord, that we'll all be sensitive to your spirit as you guide us through your word, Lord. Please be with every teacher and um, every listener, Lord. Um, may your church be edified this morning through, through the faithful teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, children, you're dismissed to your classes. Um, as I said, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Now, um, we're slowly approaching the, the halfway mark of, um, of this book. Um, there are 12 chapters, and today we're going to try and get through um, the second half of Ecclesiastes 5 and, and chapter 6, which is a bit of a strange position to start off in the middle of the chapter, but I think the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5, um, God has a special lesson or sermon on my heart for that, so I'm going to just skip over that for now, and we'll work through the rest of, um, of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. But um, as I thought back on the things that we've covered and how, how relevant this book is to our lives and just the, the, the reminder that this book is written 3,000 years ago is quite, um, quite an amazing thought. In 3,000 years, what we read in this book, in this book of Ecclesiastes when Solomon penned it and what we experience today is still so real. It's still so relevant. I think to a large extent we can say exactly what we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that things don't really change that much. Right? In Ecclesiastes 1 it says there's no new thing under the sun, and the thing that has been is the thing that will be. And it's basically he talks about this full circle of life, and things just go around, and generation comes, and generations go, and life just goes on. And in 3,000 years, the relevance of this book is it's still today. And so I think that's very much true, even as we've studied that. We've also looked in chapter 2 how there's this hedonistic pursuit that Solomon fell prey to, and this, this idea that pleasure and possessing is the ultimate purpose of life, and how ultimately Solomon found that to not be true. And I think that is still very much true for us today. Um, and, and perhaps even to a larger extent, right? The the Laodicean church, what we read about in Revelation chapter 3, how it speaks there about that they say that I am rich and I am creased with goods and have need of nothing, right? But Jesus says, you, you don't know that you are poor, you are blind, you are miserable, you are naked, you, you don't have anything. But we say that, we feel that way because we have so much. And that's exactly what um, Solomon is speaking against 3,000 years ago. Then we also looked in Ecclesiastes 3 about the seasons of life, how the seasons of life come and go, and how they are, he refers to 14 positive seasons and 14 negative seasons, and how at the end of the day, these positives and these negatives cancel each other out, and you end up almost with a zero-sum game. 
And the problem with that is, is instead of getting what God is trying to give you in each season, we try and manipulate seasons to only have the positive ones. And by doing that, we chase vanity. We are ending or setting ourselves up for futility. And so that's why we should rather embrace the seasons, see them as beautiful in God's time, instead of trying to manipulate the season. And then lastly, last week we saw in Ecclesiastes 4, how we should have a proper perspective on possessing. Look at Ecclesiastes 4 verse 6. It says, Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Right? We need to have a proper perspective on possessing. And then also we saw in verses 7 to 12 the, the need for friendship and companionship in those verses that he speaks about how two are better than one consistently. And then lastly, we saw that in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 4, how there is this fleeting nature to success. It doesn't matter how good your backstory is. It doesn't matter where you came from, where you ended up. The next generation comes, and you are just forgotten part of the previous generation. And so success is fleeting. Now, these lessons, as I said, are incredibly relevant to us. And I think today's one is no different. What we'll look at today is the deceitfulness or the deceitfulness of riches or the love of money, anything in that category. The deceitfulness of riches and the love of money. And um, like I say, we've, we've, we've got quite a bit to cover, but I've broken it up into three big chunks. And I think by doing that, we'll, we'll be able to get through all of that. The first um, bulk um, topic that I want to look at is from verses 8 down to verse um, 13 or verse 17 where it speaks about this deceitfulness of riches. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But then also I want to say we're going to look at the enjoyment of the gift of God, that which God has given us. And we're also going to look at God has the answer to what is good for us under the sun. And those are the things we're going to be looking at as we go through. So let's get into verse 8. And this is the, the deceitfulness of riches. Sorry, let me just say something before I get into this. We are going to speak about riches and money and all of that. But as a disclaimer, God is not against you having money. right? It is not money that is the problem. It is not automatically if you have money, therefore you are evil. Or if you have money, you are somehow despised by God. It's almost irrelevant. I think the key that we see in these verses is in, look at chapter 5, verse 10. It says, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied. So I just want to mention that because I'm not going to constantly clarify what I'm saying. So what I am saying is, is money is not sin. But it does lend itself to that in a very strong way because it is so attractive to us. We, we desire these things that money can bring. So don't connect riches to bad or despised of God. We are just going to see some general observations about how it typically does tend to that. Yeah. Under the sun, this is what people fall prey to when it comes to money, when it comes to riches. All right, let's get into verse, verse 8 to 9. And in verse 8 to 9, I want to say we're looking at the injustice that is caused by riches the injustice that is caused by the love of money. Verse 8 says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in the province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, 
and there is higher, and there be higher than he, than they. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself shall be served by the field. Now, he's saying, don't be surprised that you see oppression, injustice, and perverted judgment in the presence of this wealthy, bureaucratic hierarchy. Now, why am I saying that? Look, he says, higher, highest, the highest. There's this level to this system in this province, in this land, right? And he says, don't be surprised that you see oppression, injustice, and perverted judgment in the presence of this bureaucracy, this, this layered hierarchy in this province. Each one that is in a position of authority, that's what he means when he says this high and then this higher and this highest and there's even one higher than they. He says each one in this, in this position of authority has someone over him. Okay? Each one in a position of authority has someone over him. There is always someone better, someone richer, someone wealthier, someone with more power. That is how it is set up. That is how it is. And hence, where there is this layered, wealthy, bureaucratic system, you'll always find oppression because it's built on power. The system is built on power. So you'll always have this oppression going on. Now, why does this power and this, pos this position lead to oppression? Have a look at Ecclesiastes 7. Why, why does it lead to oppression, this power and this position? Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, it says... For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Because we are inherently sinful and we are inherently driven by selfish desires, that is what man is. In sin, uh, pushed towards selfishness, right? Now, if you combine sin and selfishness with power and authority, <laughs> what are you going to get? Oppression. Because it's about me and what I can gain through my position. And that is what causes oppression. So I'm accumulating for myself because I'm selfish and I'm sinful. And that's what I want to do. So I oppress those to get myself to where I want to be. I, and <laughs> it's so difficult not to like run off into a very big political um, topic into here. But the text is bringing it up. So let's just mention something about it. Um, a larger government, more ministers, more legislative intervention is not going to solve our societal and our economical problems. In fact, I think according to verse 8, it is the cause of our problems that we have. The answer to the problem that we have is a new heart. It is a gospel-changed life. It is not more ministers. In fact, what you're doing is you're putting more sin and more selfishness into positions of power and you're just increasing the oppression. You have to change the heart of the person who, and that, that heart of that person no longer looks at it as I am over here, this oppressor, over these people who I am oppressed. It, it becomes one of we are all the children of God. And so it's not this oppressor and oppressor, oppressed one. It is a servant and a master. It is the language that we see in Scripture, how that there are servants and there are masters, but they are not supposed to be at odds with each other. There is a natural order which God has given. 
But as soon as we see ourselves as an oppressor and oppressed because we've removed God and we don't look at it as servant and master, we've lost the whole part. So we need, we need to worry less about changing politics and we need to focus on the hearts of men and our ministry of reconciliation that God has given us. Because we minister to the individual, we minister to the heart, and when that heart gets changed, the results follow. We don't get involved in trying to change the political system. We focus on the hearts of men. That is how we counteract injustice, and that is how we um, get over this, this, this mess that we see as a result of this love of power and this love of money. Now, let me just mention something on verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. It's one of those ironies in life that the man who is in authority, verse 8, thinks that he is the highest in the province because he has all these people underneath him. But at the end of the day, he is just as dependent on the one who is working in the field on the field. Right? Um, we, we, the, where it starts is we need to acknowledge that we are both depending on something that is outside of ourselves. Whereas where people who are in position of authority often forget that they are still under someone who is higher than them and higher and ultimately the highest one. And so as soon as you get into a position of authority and you forget that we are all dependent on something outside of us for our existence and we're all dependent on the field and God's providence in our lives and you think of yourself as this highest one, then that is exactly where oppression creeps in. So we want to always acknowledge that there is the highest, irrespective of our status among men, because that is what brings us down to earth and makes us minister to each other with respect and with honor and with love towards each other, because we're all the children of God. It's not about who has the highest position or status or whatever that may be. We want to respect each other because we are all under the sun. We are all God's children. And we are all dependent on Him, regardless of where we're at. So let us love um, and respect each other. And let the rich towards the poor and the poor towards the rich. Right? There's always this animosity. So let's, let's put that aside. So that is, that's the first part on the deceitfulness of riches, this injustice that is caused by it. But in verses 10 to 13... I want to look at the, the insatiability, that, that, that desire that cannot be satisfied, right? This insatiability, or almost sort of calling it the indigestion that is caused by riches. The indigestion or the insatiability that is caused by riches. Let's have a look at verses 10 to 13. It says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased, they eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. This insatiability, this indigestion that is caused by riches. I think the key words are in verse 10, this loveth, and in verse 13, kept. Loveth and kept. If you love it, you'll keep it, yet you'll never have enough. <laughs> if you love it, you'll keep it, yet you'll never have enough. You'll never be satisfied, and you'll never be satiated by it. 
if you've set your heart on it, you've gone all in, hoping that it will fill the gap, but it won't. And it leads to an exchange. The exchange that takes place is as you increase, as you love the silver, as you gain this abundance that you see in verse 10, verse 12 says that um, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. It is that aspiration, that love of abundance that causes him not to sleep. And so saying there's a strange exchange that takes place here because the more you have of it, the less you have of something else. And usually, the more you have of it, the thing you have less of is something you need more. So it's an exchange you don't want to make. When it speaks about sleep, right? Remember, we looked at this last week in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, about this handful with quietness, right? Peace. This laboring man who sees that his labor is sweet. Right? But the one who doesn't have that quietness, who, who doesn't see that his labor is sweet, who, who loves the silver and the abundance and the increase, he is the one who suffers to sleep. Now, why does he suffer to sleep? Because the thoughts keep him up about what will I do with all of it? How will I keep it safe? Do I have enough yet? Right? It, should, I, should I give money to this and this? Not really for them, but just so that I can pay less taxes. Like, it just consumes your mind. And that's where this idea of indigestion comes from, right? Indigestion is the inability to process what you've consumed. So you're consuming so much, but you can't process it. You don't know what to do with it all. And that's why I say this, it often leads to indigestion. Now, I want you to understand something in verse 12. Is that there is a difference between a laboring man and a wealth-pursuing man. Right? In verse 12 it says, The sleep of a laboring man is... It doesn't mention anything about his riches. He could very well be rich. That's not the point. There's a difference between a laboring man and a wealth-pursuing man. Both are probably laboring, but the one is pursuing the wealth, whereas the other one is laboring because of the reward that the labor brings, because it's what God has given him to do. So there is a difference between that. So don't fall for the lie that your love of money, that the love of money is... Is, is satiable, it can be satisfied, it will always cost you more than it will gain for you. Now, as I was working through this, I, and I was asking myself, okay, but how do I test my heart? Right? We can say the love of money, the love of money. How do I know whether I have it or not? How do I test my heart whether there is a love of money that is growing in my heart? And yesterday at men's meeting, Pastor Mike mentioned about how Christ showed his love toward us, right? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Love is exemplified by what you're willing to sacrifice for, right? So, if we, look at, if we take that as a, as a test of our hearts, how much am I willing to sacrifice in order to get more money? Because if I'm willing to sacrifice to get my money, it's showing me that that's where my love is. Right? So, how much are you willing to give up to have more of it? Are you willing to neglect your relationship with God, with His people, the people in your home, the people God has entrusted you with, 
Are you willing to neglect that for more money? If you are, well, then you've answered the question for yourself because you're showing. You're not, it doesn't, doesn't matter what you say. You are showing by what you're choosing whether you love money or not because you'll sacrifice for the sake of having more of it. Let's have a look at verse 11 briefly. It says, When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof? This increase that we see, we saw it in verse 10, right? He that loveth abundance shall not be satisfied with increase. This increase is, um, does not lead to satisfaction. Now, why? Well, firstly, because as your goods increase, right? As your goods increase, that's what it says in verse 11, so do your expenses, so do your cares, so do your responsibilities, so do your people to feed, so do your fields to keep, so do your taxes to pay, so do your, does your pressure to keep up with the Joneses. All of this increases as your riches increase. So when goods increase, they are increased to eat of them. Right? Everything increases as your goods increase. It makes the owner of all these increased goods ask, is there really any good to all of this? That's what it says in verse 11. In the middle of verse 11 it says, and what good is there to the owners thereof? Is there really any good? Am I better off for having all of this? Am I better off? And um, in verse 13, which is very critical to answering this question, am I any better off? Verse 13 says, there is a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely riches kept to the, owner, uh, to the owners thereof to their hurt. Now that is very critical to answering the question of am I better off? Is there any good to all of this? Um, in verse 13, it speaks about this selfish man who hoards and who fattens himself and who only causes hurt to himself through all of that. And so the answer to that question is, no, you're not better off. If you are just keeping, if you are just accumulating, if you are just chasing all this stuff to hoard it, to keep it, no, you're not any better off. He answers the question in, in verse 11. But let's have a look at Proverbs briefly. Keep your place, but Proverbs chapter 11. What should... What should our approach be instead of this hoarding, this loving, all of that? Proverbs 11, verse 24. Proverbs 11, 24 says, There is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made fat, but he that, uh, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. The liberal soul. Have a look at Proverbs uh, 23. Proverbs 23. Verse 3. It says, Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle towards heaven. Right? So we should not have this mentality of, it is mine, I'm keeping it, I'm hoarding it, it will, it will satisfy me. 
That is the man that is hurting himself in Ecclesiastes 5. So the financial, financially liberal man is not hurt by his riches. He is the man who is still able to sleep sweetly as he is set on his labor. His focus, his heart is set on his labor and not on his love for money and this insatiable desire for money. Have a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're gonna, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 6 because I think it speaks to the same idea and the same man that we've just been reading about in verses 10 to 13. Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 3. If a man beget an hundred children and live many years so that, he, so that the days of his years be many, now the days of his years be many, have a look at verse 6. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, Okay, so 2,000 years. Okay, that's, that's how many years. Now let's get back to verse 3. It says, So that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. He's saying that a miscarriage or a premature born baby that doesn't survive is better off and this man who has a hundred children, yet there's no one to bury him because his soul has seen no good. He lived his whole life for this accumulation of stuff and riches and honor and all of that. And he ends up with no one having the time or the will to bury him. It's better to not have been born than to be that man. His soul is not filled with Good. Remember, that's the question in verse 11. We just looked at 5.11. It says, what good is there? Okay. So he says, his soul was never filled with this good. Verse 4, for he cometh in vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered in darkness. That's the premature baby. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. He's basically saying that no life is better than an empty, vain life. All right? Verse 6, Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to the same place. Under the sun, everyone just goes to the grave. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. And so you are laboring to fill your mouth, and when you fill your mouth, you're, you're not satisfied. It, the pit is so deep, <laughs> you cannot fill it. Verse 9, better, verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. He's saying it's better to see what you have and be thankful for what you have than to have this wandering eye that is constantly desiring the next thing, something bigger. Something big. It's better to just say, this is what I have. Praise God. Let me do the best with what I have. Than to constantly desire this wandering. It's like this person who's just wandering. They don't know where they're going, but they're wandering for something next. And that's the man that we're seeing in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 to 13. And that's the indigestion that is caused or the insatiability of riches. The last thing that I want to speak about under this deceitfulness of riches heading is in verses 14 down to verse 17. And this I want to call the insignificance, 
the insignificance that is caused by riches. Verse 14 says, But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth the son, and there is nothing in his hand. <laughs> I find it interesting that how as soon as you have a child, then you have no money left. <laughs> that's, that's basically what he said. And he begetteth the son, and there is nothing left in his hand. It's kind of like as the son comes in, as the child comes into the world, automatically your money is gone. Um, it's not what he's trying to say, but let's just let's dig into that a little bit. What he's basically saying is, is one day you have it, and the next day it's gone, right? One day you have it, and the next day it's gone. It's like the it's like the, the, the money that grows wings and flies away, right? Like an eagle towards heaven. Um, this man wanted to leave something for his son, but all of a sudden it was all gone. Now, how did that happen? It, it says in verse 13, by evil, evil travail, that is by bad or by evil occupation or by bad task or by a bad job. It's something that was poorly done or evil that happened. Now, this can be on the part of this dad, on this owner. It can be his mismanagement, his misconduct, his poor choices, his corruption. That can, that can lo- lead to his loss of the riches. But it can also be on, as a result of someone else or something else, like theft, right? Or natural disaster or things happening, and then all of a sudden you don't have the riches that you had. So you cannot depend on it. The point is, he had it, and now he doesn't. Now what I find interesting is, what does it say at the end of verse 14? He has nothing in his hand. Now if you remember last week, verse, chapter 4, verse 5, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. He also has nothing in his hand. Now this is a generalization, but it's applicable. And that is that it's often the son who banked on his dad for an inheritance who ends up the one who is envious of others for not having what they have. Because he never learned to work for the money that he has. He just banked on daddy to give it to me, but now daddy can't, and now I'm just, well, life's unfair. And so I think people, a lot of children end up there because life has been so easy for them growing up, and then they get into the world, and then, whoa, I was thinking this will be easy. Someone needs to give me something, right? I deserve free stuff. Why? I just always had free stuff, right? It's not how it works. So teach your children to work even if they don't have to. Teach your children to work even if they don't have to. You don't want your son to be that fool in verse 5 who folds his hands together for his own destruction. Verse 15. Let's continue under this thought of the insignificance caused by riches. Verse 15 says, As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing in his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath um, he that labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. So, a bit morbid, but life is a sore evil. It's this sickening evil filled with vanity. In other words, it's insignificant. It's filled with 
vanity and laboring for the wind. You're coming in naked, you're leaving naked, and in between that you chase the wind. It's insignificant. If your life is described by verse 5 to 17, if your life is described by that, it is insignificant. You're born naked and in sin. Then you'll work hard to gain a bunch of stuff that you can't take with you. And while you work hard, your days are filled with darkness, sorrow, wrath, and sickness, and then you'll die naked and in sin. <laughs> I know that's not nice, like, but it's, <laughs> it's what it says. It's real. There's no profit. It's insignificant. But in verse 17, it, 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 these words, darkness, sorrow, wrath, and sickness. And when I read that, I can't help but see the other side. John chapter 1, Jesus is spoken of as that light which came. Now, how do you drive darkness out of your life? It is by Christ who is that light who shines in that dark place and takes away that darkness. He takes us from sorrow to finding joy in Him. Right? Rejoice always because of Christ. He takes us from being children of wrath to being adopted through grace. Right? We get translated from darkness into light. And then also He heals us from our greatest sickness, which is sin, and gives us eternal healing and immortality. Right? And ultimately one day all tears will be wiped away from our eyes. So He takes away everything that our life is filled with in terms of darkness and sorrow and wrath and sickness and He gives us the antidote to each one of those things and it's all found in Christ. Amen. And so if we do not have Christ, our life is insignificant. We go from nakedness and sin to nakedness and sin and in between that we, in between that we chased the wind. So as we finish this point, don't let your pursuit of riches rob you from the significance that your life can have. Remember that you cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus said you will love the one and you will hate the other. Serving mammon will lead to insignificance and unsatisfied desires. But serving God will lead to satisfaction, significance, and joy. Right? And that's why in verse 18, the very next thing, he goes into this joy. As soon as he brings God into the picture, God is in verse 18, God is in verse 19, God is in verse 20, and we see this good. Look at verse 18. And this is the enjoyment of the gift of God that I want to talk about. Behold, verse 18, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of this life, his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. In verse 18, and we've, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we've spoken about this portion before. This portion, this is something that God, that is good, right? It says that it is good and that it is something that God gives for us to enjoy. 
That is our portion. That's verse 18. Verse 19 speaks about God does not only allow us to have riches, but he provides us the ability to enjoy it. He doesn't just allow us to have riches, but he gives us the ability to enjoy it. And then in verse 20, he says that he does this so that you don't have to go looking for memories in the past to stir up some feeling of joy because God will be your source of joy right now. Right? He says, for he shall not much remember the days of his life. It's not about what happened yesterday or the day before that. Because God answers him in the joy of his heart. Right now, God is your source of joy. How? Because you actively thank and praise him for the portion that you have today. Your eyes won't wander in desire, as we saw in chapter 6, verse 9, this wandering eyes of desire, because um, your eyes won't wander in desire for something in the past or something in the future. Because God is answering you in the joy of your heart, in your portion, right now. Now compare this man, right, verses 18 to 20, with verse 1 and 2 in chapter 6. So God says, or he says in verse 18, Behold, sorry, verse, chapter 5, verse 18, Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely. Right? Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. Now what's the difference? In verse chapter 5, it says, Every man... Chapter 5 is 19. Every man also to whom God giveth riches and wealth. The same is given to the man in chapter, two, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. What's the difference? This phrase. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 2. There's a phrase. It says, So that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. That's the difference between the two verses. Now, why am I pointing that out to you? Both men have riches which God allowed them to have. Right? But because the one desired this wealth and honor for himself, he ended up unsatisfied. He was unable to enjoy the portion. Right? It says that he didn't have power to enjoy it. Because this word power has to do with dominion. And instead of him having power over that to enjoy it, that stuff had power over him, and you couldn't enjoy it. And so it's not this stuff, it's about your desire. Now, I want to enjoy the gift of God and not be imprisoned by my desires. That is what I want. I think we should stop obsessing about the stuff, be obedient, serve God, and enjoy what he has given. Last thought. And that I just want to finish chapter 6. We've gone through all the verses in chapter 6. So just verse 11 and 12. 11 and 12 says, Seeing there be many things that increase vanity. What is man better? For who knoweth what is good for a man in his life, all the days of his, life, of his vain life, which he spendeth in, as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? And this is why I say God has the answer. The question is, for what is man better? 
or for who knoweth what is good for a man in this life under the sun? The more we increase in goods and just go through life, the more we are made aware of our vanity. The more we ask this question, what am I better off? Am I really better off for having more? So the question is then, what is good for me? What is good for me in verse 12? Because it seems like the more we pursue what we are told to be good by the world, right, the further we are from good. Because God is good. Right? Good is something that has eternal substance. Good is something that has eternal substance. And he compares that to a shadow in verse 12. A shadow has no substance of itself. It is empty. It is a... It is a uh, What's the word I'm looking for? A silhouette. It's a silhouette of something that is, that is, has no substance. So perhaps what we are missing is the fact that just like children, we don't know what is good for us. Right? We need someone to tell you, eat your vegetables. <laughs> it's good for you. Right? We need to understand we don't know what is good for us because it says, for who knoweth what is good for a man in this life? The answer is only God knows. And that is exactly what God is trying to show us in this book, is that we cannot answer this question. Every answer that people give us, every answer that the world gives us, leads to vanity. God is the only one who can answer this question of what is good. Because He is the only one who is ultimately good. He knows what's good because He made us. He knows what's good because He's the only one who knows what's coming in the life you're after. So let's stop trying to trust our own ideas, our own pursuits, our own... Let's hand them to God, right? And we'll see that He uses that to point us in a direction that is truly valuable, that has true purpose, and that can fill our life with good, and that we can live a life that is fulfilled because He is good and He is the source of all that we enjoy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you so much that this book, um, your Bible, and these words that are penned here, Lord, are so, are so eye-opening and Lord, really get to the, to the heart of the matter. It, it really digs down deep into our desires and our aspirations and makes us ask the difficult questions and face the, the realities of this life. And, Lord, thank you that our life is not futile that it isn't filled with vanity, not because of anything we've done, but because of who you are, what you've done for us through your Son, and Lord, by giving us the gift of eternal life and the hope of a future inheritance with you. And we thank you for that, Lord. Please um, continue to, to point our eyes towards heaven and not this wandering desire as we go through this life, Lord, because ultimately those things leave us empty, but true fulfillment we find in you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.